Hello and welcome to Civil War Weekly, the podcast that answers the question, what happened this week in the American Civil War? I'm your host, Tim Patrick, and this is episode 155, March 4th to March 10th, 1864. Last week, we talked about Nathan Bedford Forrest and his victory at Oklahoma. He will continue to operate in that region, giving hope to a state of Mississippi, which has not had some of that in some time. With the setbacks at Corinth and Vicksburg, having Forrest put together a successful campaign will meet a lot and protect a key agricultural area. We also had the Kilpatrick Raid, which resulted in the Dahlgren Affair. Of course, there's a lot of bad blood with a potential strike at the Confederate cabinet, which was considered to be a kind of black ops not acceptable during the Civil War. Kind of ironic considering what happens to Abraham Lincoln in 1865. This week, we need to talk about the supporting action for Kilpatrick's move against Richmond, as well as a couple other events. We have the opening of the most famous Confederate prison, half rate on shipments for the Confederacy, and the welcoming of Ulysses S. Grant into Army Command. First, let's head to Virginia. Of course, before we do that, though, we need to plug in the Patreon and Patreon content. And of course, this week, this month, really, we are going to finally get to our dual movie review that we did for The Beguiled, where we reviewed the 1971 Clint Eastwood version and then the 2017 Colin Farrell version and kind of compared and contrast the two. And surprisingly, there's a lot of stuff to draw on. There's a lot of stuff in terms of historical accuracy to talk about. There's kind of like a suspense movie or American Gothic, the 1971 version is, is sort of described as. So there's a lot of stuff to talk about between the two movies about the Civil War since it is, of course, set at that time. And that sounds like something that would interest you or some of our past movie reviews that we've done, memoir reviews, or picture slideshows of modern-day battlefields. All of that is on the Patreon, and it is in a link in the show description. Those proceeds do go toward the general upkeep of the show. So as part of Kilpatrick's raid on Richmond, George Armstrong Custer would provide a diversion in Albemarle County near Charlottesville. His objective would be to capture a key railroad bridge over the Ravana River. Now Custer had sort of had a falling out with Kilpatrick. Of course, you remember Custer had been previously a subordinate to him, although detached from his command at Gettysburg. This might have been fortuitous for Custer, because maybe he would have been in a similar situation as Farnsworth was, and you remember on the third day how Farnsworth makes a pretty reckless charge that ends up costing him his life. Regardless, Custer would marry his wife Libby in the winter of 1864 and thus be removed from the army. On his return, he would get a hodgepodge command to lead in a strike on Charlottesville. The Dahlgren raid, if you recall, also included a kind of mixed command, which is never good when you're talking about the Civil War if you're kind of breaking up unit cohesion, officers and regiments not familiar with each other. That is something that is really conducive to having a successful command in the Civil War. So breaking those up and kind of putting and piecing together units uh, doesn't really have a whole lot of examples of where that works out. Already, there were problems in the Kilpatrick Raid with the lack of discipline amongst the regiments commanded by new leaders. 
The target, though, was not going to be quite the prize Richmond and Jeff Davis would be. In fact, guarding the area around the Ravana Bridge were units of Jeb Stewart's horse artillery, who were settling down into winter quarters. Remember that winter quarters were more permanent, and soldiers were often eager to get into them as opposed to staying in the open. Custer's command would involve some 1,500 men, and he would be facing 200 horse artillerymen from four different batteries. He would move on the enemy, attempting to gain a crossing at Rio Mill. Despite there being a slight warning sign from fellow Confederates, the horse artillery were unable to guard what could have been a choke point. Custer had captured several Confederates who were telling him that Fitzhugh Lee was in Charlottesville. Sounds seemed to indicate that this was correct, so the boy general would attempt to deploy his troopers as quickly as possible. Oddly enough, the Confederates were not as prepared as they otherwise should have been to receive him. Still, artillery pieces were thrown forward to start trying to delay the numerous blue-clad horsemen. Some of the artillerymen would deploy as skirmishers armed with only pistols, which is obviously not the right weapon for the job, especially when you're considering that some of these individuals in Custer's command are going to have repeating rifles. Marcellus Mormon, commanding the Confederates, would decide to form squads to mimic cavalry reinforcement setting up outside of the camp. Custer's men would start looting the camp and generally start trying to cause some destruction, but the squads seemed to be working. Meanwhile, a caisson would explode, causing panic amongst the troopers. In fact, Custer would believe that the artillery had reformed and he was now outnumbered with added rebel weight. His men would withdraw, the small damage being easily repaired. Jeb Stewart's cavalry would catch up with him on March 1st and briefly skirmish and exchange artillery fire at Standardsville in nearby Greene County, but the Union mounted men were able to successfully get back to friendly lines. During the raid, Custer destroyed the bridge over the Ravana River and also burned three large flouting mills filled with grain and flour, captured six caissons and two forges with harness complete, captured one standard bearing the arms of Virginia, over 50 prisoners, and about 500 horses, besides bringing away over 100 contrabands. That last part was from his official report, so that's why the wording is a little odd. Amazingly, at Rio Hill, Custer lost only one wounded and the Confederates only had two captured, so very small casualties. Overall, though, it was hard to call the raid a success, and it's also hard to think it was necessary as it really didn't draw the attention from the other raid. Now, you could also pair that with the fact that the other raid didn't necessarily draw any kind of attention at all, right? Kilpatrick gets to where he does, he turns back because of the defenses, and then Dahlgren kind of gets lost and then gets ambushed. And we mentioned how it was kind of a hodgepodge of home guard units, militia, uh, and some actual regular rebel cavalry as well. So not really a whole lot needed to deal with him. On February 27th, Andersonville will officially open as a prison camp. To put things now in full context, we have some activities surrounding the prison camps in the Richmond area. We had the Great Escape from Levy Prison that did allow for some of those previously incarcerated to make it successfully back to friendly lines. Additionally, it was the target of the Kilpatrick-Dahlgren raid. Both Libby and Belle Isle were considered for targets during that field operation. It would be apparent to the Confederates that they needed to establish camps 
further afield, especially when compared to the capability of Union cavalry to penetrate their territory on various raids. So to protect the prisoners until they get exchanged, or as things turn out in 1864, we're actually going to be suspending those exchanges, there needs to be a more remote location, and so the Confederates have picked a spot in Georgia to be a large prison for the POWs. The problem, of course, in being remote is that supply would be an issue, especially as the camp drastically outgrew its original designs. Originally, 16.5 acres had been set aside, but this would increase to 26 acres. The number of prisoners would go from 10,000 to 33,000. As we may have highlighted before, a stockade surrounded those incarcerated with a deadline, which was not to be crossed unless the men being confined wanted to be fired upon. Men would write about how there were a lot of vermin who would infiltrate the camp, the prisoners inside nearly naked and building whatever lean-to structures they could. A stream that was supposed to be used for drinking water would quickly become contaminated as it flows through the large amounts of soldiers. There was generally a lawlessness inside the camp, with Union soldiers preying upon each other in an effort to survive. The garrison consisted originally of Confederate soldiers, but devolved into Home Guard units. So, these were either very young or very old individuals that had been called into service. The remoteness of the camp made escape difficult, and the guard would employ dogs for the purpose of catching anyone who dared. If you also think about that too, like, it might not seem like a whole lot you having to deal with older men and younger boys, right, who are guarding you, and it's really only a stockade, and, and maybe you could escape, or come up with a way in which you could escape, but if you also think about it, like, you don't really know where you are, right? You're in the middle of Georgia, you could be going in a direction that's safe, you could also not be going in a direction that's safe, you don't know what Sherman is doing, you know, if he's marching through Georgia, maybe you're able to join up with that army, but you also really don't know, right? You need to rely on help from locals, and some of the locals, obviously, you can't trust them, others are going to be more on the side of the Union, you might have formerly enslaved individuals who are going to help you, right? But there's a lot of things that are up in the air, and to add on to that, you're probably malnourished, so you're not going to be able to walk as long as far as you probably were marching when you were in the army. So there's a lot of factors that really go against uh, escape. And even if we're thinking about it, like if it's only a, a handful of individuals who are guarding you, it's just not quite so easy as all of that. Now, it may surprise you to know that there was a member of the 54th Massachusetts taking prisoner and would find their way to Andersonville. His name was Corporal James Gooding, who was, amongst others, who were also captured and taken to Andersonville. So, kind of goes against the narrative that all of them were executed following their assault on Fort Wagner. These were not the only black soldiers to end up at camp. Lyle Adair was a sergeant in the 111th United States Colored Troops and would be also confined in the terrible conditions. Adair would actually write down the rules of the prison, which we can read off here. There will be two daily roll calls at the prison, one at 8 o'clock and one at 4 o'clock. The prisoners are divided into detachments of 100 men each. Five detachments constitutes a division. Each division must occupy the ground assigned to them for the encampment, 
No huts or tents must be erected outside of the camping grounds. Each detachment must select a sergeant. The five sergeants of the division will appoint one of their number to draw rations for the whole division. The sergeants are responsible for the cleanliness of their encampment. They will each day make a detail from among them, their men, for policing the camp throughout. Any man refusing to do police duty will be punished by the sergeants by bailing him for the rest of the day. No rations will be issued to any division unless all the men are present at roll call. The sergeants in charge of the detachment must report each absentee. If he fails to do so, and it turns out that the missing man has escaped, he will be put in closed confinement until the missing man is recaptured. The sergeant of a detachment will report all those sick in his detachment and will carry them after roll call at 8 o'clock a.m. in the morning to the receiving hospital. After examination by the surgeon in charge, he will leave those who were admitted and carry the others back. He will at the same time take charge of those belonging to his division who may be discharged from the hospital. The prisoners have the privilege to write twice a week. No letter must be over one page in length and must contain nothing but private matters. Any prisoner has a right to ask for an interview with the commanding officer of the prison by applying to the sergeant of the gate between the hours of 10 and 11 a.m. The sergeant of a detachment and a division must report to the commandant of the prison any shortcomings of rations. No prisoner must cross the deadline, nor speak to any sentinel on post, nor attempt to buy or sell anything to a sentinel. The sentinel, having orders to fire on anyone crossing the deadline or attempting to speak or trade with them, is the duty of the detachment sergeants to carry any men who would die in quarters immediately to the receiving hospital, giving the hospital clerk the name, rank, company, regiment, and state of division. To prevent stealing in camp, the prisoners have a right to elect a chief of police who will select as many men as he deem necessary to assist him. He and the sergeants of the divisions have a right to punish any man who is detected stealing. The punishment shall be shaving of one half of the head and a number of lashes not exceeding 50. So we just ran down some 13 rules here that would be associated with Andersonville, the prison here. And you kind of get a mixed reception of these. It's like, in theory, these sound like good ideas, right? But you're also kind of pitting the prisoners against each other, right? They're having to elect sergeants. There's a lot that is going on the sergeants. If somebody escapes, it's, it's kind of on them, right? They're going to get punished if somebody actually ends up escaping. So that's kind of deterring them from making that attempt, right? Unless I guess, I suppose if you don't care or don't like your sergeant, right? But then you're also talking about rations. You're going to have to go get the rations. You're going to distribute them. And then you're going to be able to talk to the commandant about a shortage of rations. And well, I guess you could go talk to him, but I don't necessarily think you're going to get very far because you're going to get what you're going to get, right? And on top of that, you're only given a certain amount to make camp for your division. So it's not really clear how big that area is, right? And if you're already confined in these spaces, you're kind of on top of each other. So I think all of these rules have their places in terms of, you know, maybe they would have been good for order, but obviously with the overcrowding of the prison, the lack of supplies, if it had stayed at, you know, however many it was supposed to be, 10,000, 12,000, you know, maybe this would have been an efficient system, maybe, right? But obviously with the number of individuals that were actually incarcerated in Andersonville becomes a pretty big problem. 
At the conclusion of the war, Clara Barton would accompany a former prisoner named Dorrance Atwater in an attempt to mark the graves of the Union soldiers who died at the camp. There were some noted 12,000 men buried there, remarkably with only 460 left unidentified by that party. On March 2nd, we have Ulysses S. Grant being promoted to Lieutenant General, giving him the rank over all the Union armies. Now, Lieutenant General had not been used since Washington, and not even Winfield Scott, as we have discussed before, would have that rank, so Grant is in rare company here. Lincoln would finally realize that he had found his man in Grant, and the president, to his credit, essentially decided to let him develop his own plan of action. I think there had been a lot of political pressure or meddling with some of those other generals, which is going to maybe not lead to their failure, but at least make their job difficult. Lincoln, also, earlier in the war, is going to be more involved in trying to plan out a strategy, right? Remember he talked to McClellan about how maybe you don't want to go this way, maybe you want to do this instead. He's going to try to insert himself into that conversation, right? And Lincoln, to his credit, tries to learn. He tries to make sure he can be on the same page as these generals, right? But by this stage in the war, he really just wants to win, right? And he knows the election is coming up here. He needs to win that as well. So he needs somebody that's going to be able to get the job done. And Grant already has that proven track record that some of these other generals quite simply just didn't have. If we kind of take a look at Grant and analyze his performance, does he actually always turn in a stellar outing when he goes into battle? I think we have highlighted that he really doesn't, right? There are times when he makes mistakes. There are times when his general strategy doesn't really work. And we're going to see in the Overland Campaign of 1864, we already saw at Vicksburg, he really only has one big idea, right? And that's just a mass charge, right? He, he wanted that coordinated attack at Vicksburg and storming the defenses at Vicksburg doesn't work, right? Um, he kind of gets lucky by having these lesser generals in the Vicksburg campaign against him. Shiloh, he's able to actually have numerical superiority, especially if the reinforcements coming in, right, that are going to replace some of his losses. I think really, if you take a look at Fort Donelson and Fort Henry, the entire operation was bungled by the Confederates there, and it could have definitely gone a different way comparatively, right? Chattanooga, right? You're facing Bragg, and Bragg, for some reason, doesn't abandon the siege, quote-unquote, of that city. He could have come up with a better idea, right? Or, you know, obviously, it's it's kind of like Monday morning quarterbacking, saying that he could have come up with a better idea, but uh, what he does just doesn't work. And, you know, Grant, at least at the Missionary Ridge portion of that, Right? He really wants Sherman to be the actual action that wins the day, and Sherman doesn't win, right? Claiborne stymies him there at Tunnel Hill, and then it ends up being the central part of the action with Thomas's forces that does smash Bragg, capture a lot of prisoners, really, a lot of individuals surrender, and almost destroys entirely the Confederate Army of Tennessee. So that part wasn't planned, right? Grant didn't come up with that. It just kind of happened call it a soldier's fight, right, sometimes, where they just kind of disobey their officers and they end up winning the day, right? So are all these great tactical victories? Is he the next Napoleon? Not really, but he does understand what it's going to take to win the war, as we're going to see here in 1864. 
And to that purpose, Grant is going to set up with Meade and the Army of the Potomac, specifically for Lee's destruction. You see, the Confederacy had already lost territory, but so long as the Army of Northern Virginia remained in the field, that's going to be an issue. Benjamin Butler would soon begin preparations to move up the peninsula, and Franz Siegel, a name we haven't heard in quite some time, will be dispatched to the Shenandoah Valley, giving a three-pronged approach in Virginia alone. Sherman will be given control over the west, and would specifically be tasked with getting at Atlanta. Mobile would also be a target of these new offenses, which will soon be kicking off, so stay tuned for those. On March 5th, the Confederate government would issue orders for all shipments to contain half capacity for their purposes. Obviously, this will show just how desperate the South will be. We have talked in the past about how the Confederate civilians would run low on everyday commodities because of this. We can also point fingers at the lack of a true industrial infrastructure twofold. The first is that the logistics systems we have mentioned are failing the southern states. When you really look into how easily they can be hampered by raiding parties of Union troopers, there's no surprise. Something else that we need to point out here as well is that the industrial capacity of the South is almost entirely, is really entirely shifted toward war material. If you have a railroad track that gets torn up and the Union troopers make Sherman neckties out of them where they heat up the metal part, we talked about this before, and then they tie it around a tree... There isn't a factory dedicated to making railroad supplies, right? You're not going to be able to just make these ties again. So you're going to have to be very inventive on how you're going to solve these issues because all of your factories, and you only have a limited number of factories, are going to be used to making weapons. And really, you do need that, right? You need them to be making weapons because you're at a severe disadvantage in that regard. But the North is still going to have the capability of running other pieces of industry. So that's really where their main advantage comes from, right? Additionally, with few alternative options, the Confederate commissary would be plagued with issues, including if there were delays to the trains. Civilian traffic is still going to be needed to flow, which is something we highlighted back when we talked about the great locomotive chase. I do want to point out that there could have been some kind of food to go around, especially early in the war, but not so much as we proceed, and the agricultural centers of the South get pillaged. Now, before the war, we need to mention there was a focus on cash crop, like cotton, which of course is useless when it comes to filling an empty stomach. Before the outbreak of the war, there was more of an emphasis placed on corn. Corn and pork were both large staples to the diets of the southern populace. Corn is used to make cornbread, and could also be used to feed hogs, and the green husks of the corn could also be used as fodder for cattle. But even before the firing on Fort Sumter, the North was making great strides in terms of agriculture. Cincinnati and then Chicago became large meatpacking centers, getting hogs from the South, but also from their fellow northern states. This northern source of hogs increased in the lead-up to the war. We talk a lot about how the North is able to build what at the time would be the most powerful navy in the world in terms of numbers and technological advancements and vessels, but an equally impressive feat would be that they increased the amount of active farms significantly 
in order to provide food for the war effort. More not a justification for the conflict by any means, we can see how these are seeds being sown where the North would have eventually become self-sufficient except for cotton. And if that's the only thing that the South is offering is this cotton, and you have a plantation that gets severely hamstrung in terms of their workforce for that commodity, i.e. emancipation, then yeah, we kind of get the idea, right? Like, you don't really need the South anymore. And so that's where this kind of economic disparaging comes from. War material was also a tough disadvantage. We've already highlighted how the North has predisposition to being superior manufacturing, and the Confederacy has lost several manufacturing centers, such as New Orleans and Nashville. Richmond and Atlanta would be two key cities for this usage, but they will soon be in the crosshairs, as we mentioned. Help from abroad will lead the Confederacy to require percentage on these shipments as a way to supplement their stores. With that, we're going to go ahead and call this episode to a close. We had George Armstrong Custer at Rio Hill, which is a far cry from his dashing Cavalier reputation. Andersonville is officially opened as a POW camp, so we have more detail on its unhappy history. Ulysses S. Grant is named Lieutenant General, so it's going to be his show from here on out. Finally, the Confederate government will require all shipments to allow 50% capacity for their purposes. Next week, we are going to jump into the Red River Campaign, talking about its origin and first steps. If you like what you hear, please make sure to leave a review. Posted in the description should be a link to the website as well as Patreon and Venmo information. Support for the general upkeep of the show is greatly appreciated. Once again, feedback is always welcome. Questions, comments, concerns, the email is cwweeklypod at gmail.com. Thank you all so much for listening and have a great week.